0: Hope everyone's had a good week, good weekend. <clears throat> this morning, um, as we have already read, we're going to take a look at a parable um, of Jesus, the parable of the rich fool. <clears throat> now, parables, they're simply just narratives or sayings of varying length designed to illustrate a truth, especially through a comparison or simile. Uh, there was the primary means for Jesus' teaching, um, and they're closely connected to the main focus of his teaching, which is the kingdom of God. Now, more succinctly, a parable is simply a story used to illustrate a moral or a spiritual lesson. Obviously, we know that Jesus had many of them, as I stated before. But I want to give some context here for the reason behind this parable. Now, Jesus, he had just left the home of a Pharisee, as we had already learned. This Pharisee invited him over for supper because he wanted to catch him in, in, in some questions. He had questions for him. And that's when Jesus pronounced many woes to the Pharisees and to the scribes. But as Jesus left the home... Of this Pharisee, there was many thousands of people that had gathered around, and they were trampling one another. So Jesus drew a crowd while he was inside this Pharisee's home, speaking and teaching these Pharisees. And when Jesus Jesus gave them a warning in this in this account, he gave them a warning about the leaven of the Pharisees, which we learned last week, which is hypocrisy. But he also engaged um, the crowd that was outside there not to fear and to acknowledge him before men. Now I got to ask you this before we get a little further. How many of you have had a rich relative die and leave an inheritance to anyone? I shall keep my hand down. Right? So in in those accounts, there's usually a last will and a testament that's left, and the rich relative will leave something to someone, correct? Usually? Maybe? Leaves to the wife, kids, nixes everybody and gives it to someone else. That's what happens here. Jesus is speaking, and as he's speaking, there's a man in the crowd that interrupts him and has this audacious request, audacious request. He asked Jesus to tell his brother to divide the inheritance with him. So obviously we can we can assume here that someone had died, someone had passed away, and there was a great inheritance that was left. Maybe some property, a giant house, maybe he had to built more. Or there was something of value that was in this last will and testament that the brother wanted. Now, there's, again, there's something about family members that argue, um, over possession, right? They, they'll, they'll, they'll be something left and there might be some kids that kind of bicker and complain about certain things or certain items that they want. And one of the commentaries I read, the guy had this story about how someone had died and as they were on the way back, the family was already there putting their names on the things that they wanted. <laughs> I could just imagine people with post-it notes sticking their names on, on, you know, a, a certain lamp or a dish that they, had enjoyed or really wanted that was their great-grandmothers. But see, the text doesn't give us these details. We just assume this. But what, what is great here to see is Jesus' response and what it tells us, right? He has no interest in being the judge over a simple probate case. But he had no interest in being Judge Judy. But it's clear within Scripture that Christ will be the ultimate judge, right? When he returns to judge the quick and the dead. But this is not the purpose here at this time in his earthly ministry. Jesus' main concern is to seek and save that which is lost. He's after those lost sheep. Right? He's, he's seeking to transform the heart and transform the person. And with this interaction, Jesus then issues a, a warning. Right? There's another warning that happens in sequence with this crowd. And the Gospels are filled with warnings. When you read through them, you'll see various warnings. And that's what I want to call this is a gospel warning. He's telling these thousands of people that have gathered here and all of us who can hear his words to guard against all kinds of covetousness. He's looking back at the Ten Commandments and he's saying, do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servants or his donkey or his ox or anything that is your neighbor's possessions. To put it into modern day terms, obviously, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet your neighbor's house. I don't know if we have any servants or his donkey or his ox, his cars, his clothing, things of this nature. Now, quick to give a definition of what covetousness is, it's a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions or to possess more things than than other people have. Thomas Watson says this, he says that his definition of covetousness is an insatiable desire of getting the world. We all know that cliche, the one who dies with the most toys wins, right? Right? It's because we covet our neighbor's possessions. It's because we have a sick heart. Because our heart is full of sin. Paul likens this to idolatry in Colossians 3.5. So it's no, su- no surprise today that we still fight against this. We're still sinful human beings trapped within this sinful body with a new heart that's still fighting and struggling with one another. We fight against greed, we fight against idol- idolatry, and we fight against covetousness. But not just in, this, in the context of, of secular society, society outside of church and outside of Christendom, but oh, within Christendom as well, we still struggle with this. We see large ministries on television whose main goal is, is not to the, the proclamation of the gospel, but to gain money and possessions. We see pastors, quote-unquote, wearing expensive three-piece suits. And again, these aren't all bad things. Expensive three-piece suit, it's not a bad thing. Expensive sneakers, I mean, I like Jordans as much as the next young guy, but I don't know if I would spend the money on them. Right, we see them in mansions, in multiple cars, and billion-dollar jets, and they're focused on the riches and the fame, but not the proclamation of the gospel, not the proper stewardship of the gospel message. The greed has filled their hearts. Covetousness has filled their hearts. Idolatry has filled their hearts. And, and, and some of these fools, as we'll call them, it, it kind of goes in line with this text, that they've made claims stating that Jesus, if Jesus were here, he wouldn't be riding on a donkey, or... We don't want to get in a long tube filled with a bunch of demons. They've said these things in, in, in talking about the reasoning behind getting these big, expensive private jets and flying all across the world to proclaim the gospel, as they would say. See, we have to guard against this heart issue. And the one solution for this is to continually renew our hearts and minds with the Word of God and to fight against the desires of our flesh. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you, as John Owen has said. See, we need God to continually remove our heart of stone, to replace it with a heart of flesh, to do heart surgery on us, to fix those spots, right? We need that heart of flesh so that he can mold and shape us into whom he has He wants us to be and to conform to his will. And thank God this is what he does for us, right, through the gospel, through the working of the Holy Spirit, through church on Sunday mornings, through fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, this man in the crowd, he had misplaced affections and misplaced trust. He placed them in his material possessions and his wealth rather than in Christ. And we do this. I do this. I've done this on many of occasions. I've been very guilty of this. See, I've been more content with keeping up with the Joneses than I have been with tre- keeping up treasures in heaven or laying up treasures in heaven. Many, many of you can agree with this and, and, and feel that sentiment. But as Jesus proceeds on with this parable about the rich man, he says the rich man, again, he misplaced his trust in, his fec- in affections. He misplaced his trust and affections, and he placed them in the crops that he had just harvested. Again, one thing I think we should note here in this text is how many times the man mentions to himself, I, my, and you. I counted a total of 11 times. I'll read it real quick. It's in verses 16 through 19. He says, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. See, he's focusing on himself and on, on his possessions, this rich, rich fool. Again, namely, those plentiful crops that he had harvested. And he places his trust and his affections in those ample goods and within himself as if to say he knows what's best for him. He has this inner discussion at this point, and I think many times we have this same inner discussion with, in regards to something that we want or do, right? We have these inner discussions where we try to decide between something. It's going to go something like this. You know, I really need this new giant house, or this new car, or new iPhone, right? Steve Jobs was excellent at selling us something that we don't even really need. Internet in our pockets, trouble in our pockets. If I only had this new car or this new house or these new clothes, I'd be the talk of the town. People would see me and think, "Wow, you know what? This guy, this guy has money and he must be super important." But what happens when when we get this new car and this new clothes and these new houses? We get bored with it, right? We want to change it immediately. Then there's nothing wrong with. You know, updating a kitchen or updating a bathroom. We are painting cabinets right now. It's a cheaper route to go. There's nothing wrong with that, right? We get bored with it. We want something different. And again, this goes back to our definition of covetousness. A strong desire to acquire more and more. But it's only because we're unsatisfied with what we have. We're not content with what we have or what God has so graciously provided to us. The, the, The crops were provided by God. He provided ample rain and ample sunlight for these crops to grow plentifully see the rich fool he then determines that since he has nowhere to store this amazing harvest and his possessions that he's going to tear down his old small barns and he's going to build larger ones so that he can store all these grains and his goods just at this point he decides you know what i'm going to retire i'm going to live like i'm on the lifestyle of rich and famous with robin leach any of you know who that is there's a few of you in the crowd i'm sure Again, that's not a knock against living a retired life or, live, or being retired because those are all good things. We all want to eventually work to the point of where we don't have to work anymore and we can you know, live and enjoy our life and enjoy our, our marriage and enjoy traveling and enjoy our kids and grandkids and so on and so forth. But there is a way to retire and live to the glory of God and, and not to the glory of ourselves. So looking back on verse 15, it says, One's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Life's not about the car you drive, the house you live in, or the clothes that you wear. No, it's about loving God and enjoying him forever, and loving others as an extension of that enjoyment and fulfillment in God. Jesus, in this sense, saying, life's not about your possessions. Life's about me. It consists of Christ. We look at John 6, or John fourteen six, where he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Again, the rich fool here, he, he didn't gain his possessions in, in an unfair way. It was the land that produced these crops. It was the land that produced the crops and then ultimately God who provided for it. As he does with every one of us, provides and and sustains us. His riches weren't gained deceitfully. As R. Kent Hughes said said this, he said, He come by his wealth honestly, like so many of us. He did not cheat to get his fields. He did not devour widows' homes. He was not an abuser of of employees. God had blessed him materially. Again, it's not a bad thing in and of itself to be blessed in that manner. God provided plentifully, but rather than the rich man trusting in the provider and having his affections for the provider, he placed his trust and his affections in his possessions. He didn't trust God in the increase, and he thought to himself that it it would be more beneficial to store up these crops and build larger barns. We all do, do this. We store and we hoard things and, and place our trust in those possessions only to be let down and disappointed by them. Kind of like the TV show Storage Wars, right? I've only watched maybe a couple episodes, but again, you get the picture. People have stored these things away and when they die or when you know, what, such and such event happens and they can't pay the rent or anything, they auction off the, the, the storage building or the storage facility, and then people get all these treasures, right? That people have laid up for themselves that they, they don't even get to enjoy. So rather than keeping what was needed and giving away what had been provided in excess, the man kept it. And God called him out. He calls him a fool. He says, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Much like our people in the storage war illustration. Whose will those items be? The person with the highest auction, right? The highest bid. God calls him a fool because the rich man, this rich fool, is living like there is no God. He's living as if God doesn't provide. Again, looking at our current culture and the context of the United States and within American Christianity, we see this very same thing. We still have yet to defeat covetousness in our own hearts. And this is always going to be the case until our hearts have been transformed by the Holy Spirit and our eyes opened to our sinful, covetous selves. He tells the rich fool, you you save these possessions, but, but who gets them when you die? See, it's a vicious cycle. You can't take your possessions with you when you die. And in the end, someone is going to end up in the same predicament that this brother had in the very beginning. And the reason that he asked this question to Jesus, or asked this request, divide the inheritance between my brother and I. Tell my brother I want half. It's a cycle. None of us are exempt from this because we're all... We are all fools if we lay up treasures for ourselves and we're not being rich towards God. We're fools if we don't live like God will provide for us. We're fools if we place our affections on material possessions. And we're fools if we place our trust in the provisions and not the provider. But thanks be to God for his gospel, which changes our hearts. And thanks be to God because he changes our affections and our trust. Our hearts are truly the problem and the gospel of Jesus Christ is truly the solution to that problem. And we all know this. But I want to leave you with one final thought. One, one quote that really stuck out to me by J.C. Ryle. He says, yeah, okay. A man has many acres, and, and the more acres he has, the more cares he has. And the more his money increases, the more of his time is generally consumed and eaten up in thinking about that. Mo' money, mo' problems. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this time to gather and to hear your word, and to hear the gospel. And Lord, I pray that all within the sound of this voice and and, and within the gospel message, God, that you would change hearts by your Holy Spirit, that you would cause us to seek you first and not treasures and not possessions, Lord, that you would be the greatest possession that we have and that you would cause us to place our hopes and our trusts and our affections in you. Lord, I thank you that even, even if this sermon went over terribly, God, that you still do work in the people's hearts. We thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.